Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there, DPS world. Time for your first fireside chat. Dr. Ross Green here. Very glad to be with you this evening, or for those of you who are joining in from Australia this morning. Uh, Almost 1,000 people signed up for this fireside chat, and I'm delighted to be spending the next 90 minutes with you uh, covering any variety of subjects related to kids and schools and families and pandemics and, um, you know, life. Um, If you want to call in to ask a question or join in on the discussion, that number is 347-994-2981. I think you have to press 1 to get through after you get through. 347-994-2981. Let's see if I can remember to remind you of that number periodically over the next 90 minutes. Fireside chat. This is a uh, tough time to be raising kids, to be teaching kids. Uh, Pandemics, that's not a minor thing. Um, So the big question, of course, for the evening is, does the pandemic change anything when it comes to solving problems collaboratively and proactively? Well, you know what? Uh, Here's one way to look at it. Uh, Not really. Uh, It basically tells us what we should have been doing all along. But we'll get into how it has changed some things. It has certainly added some new expectations to the plates of kids and parents. It has added the demands of distance learning to educators. It has put families together way more than they usually are. And it has uh, brought to the fore many problems that families may have gotten away with skirting or just letting go for a very long time. But it's hard to let them go now because they're staring you in the face and you're dealing with them all the time. They still have to be solved, preferably collaboratively and proactively, but the pandemic has added new expectations and new demands, but when it comes to how to deal with expectations that a kid is having difficulty meeting, when it comes to how to deal with those demands, it actually hasn't changed a thing. Now, I don't want to diminish the fact that these are scary times. Um, Many people have lost loved ones to this awful pandemic. Um, It's still scary, even though people are relaxing a little bit. What's interesting is I see some interesting parallels between what it takes to live in a family together through a pandemic and what it takes to live through a pandemic together as a country. 
it's really fascinating. Um, it has brought interesting forces together that always cause us to struggle with each other, that always cause disagreements. I'm not going to be talking much about nationally tonight because that's not what most folks want me to talk about, but what goes on nationally is sort of metaphorical for what goes on in families. There's self-interest versus the common good. There's what people are saying we need to do to survive economically versus what people are saying we need to do to survive COVID-19. From one perspective, mine, those are legitimate concerns on both sides. We sure do make things worse when we portray one side or the other as the enemy when one side or the other is portraying the other as the bad guys. That does not make anything better. Blaming makes nothing better. Finding fault makes nothing better. Um, we're still not very good at resolving our disagreements. Maybe in your family you can do better than we do nationally. Um, don't call in yet. I'll give the number again, but don't call in yet. We've got a bunch to get through before I'm going to start taking calls. We also have some questions that have been emailed in. Uh, but that number to call in again is 347-994-2981. If you've already called in, please just be patient for about 15 minutes because we've got people listening tonight who have a great deal of familiarity with the collaborative and proactive solutions model and this approach to resolving conflict and disagreement. But we also have people who are brand new to the CPS model. And I want to make sure that as it relates to knowing the basics of the model, that we are on a level playing field. Let me just cover a few things, and then we'll see if we can start interacting with each other. Um, those of you who know the model know um, that it is not focused on a kid's behavior. And it's not focused on modifying the kid's behavior. It's focused instead on identifying the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. In this model, behavior is just the signal, just the fever, just the means by which a kid is communicating something very important. You don't want to miss this. I'm stuck. There are expectations. I'm having difficulty meeting. That's all behavior is. So if all we're busy doing is using rewards and punishments to modify the behavior, all we're modifying is the signal. But we are not identifying or solving a single problem that way. This is a problem-solving model, not a behavior modification model. So in this model, if you're a parent, you are out of the sticker business. You are out of the timeout business. You are out of, well, you should have been anyways, out of the spanking business. 
out of the business of depriving your kid of dinner because of an expectation your kid didn't meet, you are in the business of identifying the expectations your child is having difficulty meeting reliably. And then you are on the hook for solving those problems with your child. And if you're thinking that because you're not modifying behavior anymore, your child's behavior will worsen, think again. The, the research that is accumulated on the CPS model tells us the exact opposite. If you're worried that you won't be an authority figure anymore by solving problems instead of modifying behavior, think again. If you're, if you're worried that you won't be holding your kid accountable or that he won't be held responsible if you're solving problems collaboratively and proactively instead of modifying behavior, think again. You're still an authority figure. You're still holding your kid accountable. You still have expectations. But it is those expectations that are going to become your focal point, not the behaviors that are caused when your child is having difficulty meeting those expectations. That's big. Here's another big one. When you're solving those problems, you are not flying solo. You're not on your own. You've got a partner, a teammate, your kid. We adults tend to think that it's our job to solve problems for our kids I would call that unilateral problem solving, and it doesn't work very well because somebody very important has been left out of the mix, your kid. When you're solving problems collaboratively and proactively, your kid is very much in the mix. In this model, you're solving problems together. What a big shift. Boy, those are two very big shifts. A lot of people have a lot of trouble with those two big shifts. Why do we have trouble shifting from behavior to the problems that are causing those behaviors, from modifying behavior to solving the problems that are causing those behaviors? Because um, modifying behavior is the way it's been done for a very long time. And by my way of thinking, it hadn't been working very well. Maybe, maybe you noticed that. Why are we solving problems collaboratively rather than unilaterally? Well, because why not? Why not involve your child in solving the problems that affect their lives? Why use power, unilateral problem solving, when you could instead be collaborative? Some of you have heard me say this before. Power causes conflict. Collaboration brings people together. And there has never been a more important time for families and nations to be together than during a pandemic. A few more big shifts here, just to make sure we're all on a level playing field. The problem solving that you'll be doing is going to be proactive not reactive. As you all know, a lot of us wait until 
we're in the thick of it with our kid before we try to solve the problem that has caused us to be in the thick of it. Not this model. Um, 99% of what you're doing in this model is planned and proactive, but that's where people ask some very logical questions. How can we be planned and proactive when we never know when the kid's going to blow? When he's always getting upset from out of the blue, when he's so unpredictable, here are the answers. Your kid is not unpredictable. Your kid is not blowing up from out of the blue um, under one condition. You've got to make a list. You've got to make a list of every expectation your child is having difficulty reliably meeting. Because if you don't make your list, you're going to get stuck in the heat of the moment dealing with it time after time after time. Most of these problems, most of these expectations your child is having difficulty meeting, those are called unsolved problems, by the way, also known as problems that have yet to be solved, also known as problems that are waiting to be solved. Some of those expectations, your kid's been having difficulty meeting those expectations for a very long time. Proof that dealing with your child in the heat of the moment, when your child is having difficulty meeting that expectation yet again, bad timing. Heat of the moment. You don't got to do this in the heat of the moment. Proof that all those rewards and punishments that you've been administering, uh, when your child exhibits behaviors you don't like in response to expectations your child is having difficulty meeting, hadn't gotten you very far. You need a list, and the list is not going to be the list of behaviors your kid is exhibiting. When your kid is having difficulty meeting expectations, the list is going to be the expectations your child is having difficulty reliably meeting. Because if you make that list, and then you prioritize which ones you're going to work on first and which ones you're going to hold off on working on for now, then your efforts to solve problems with your kid can be almost exclusively proactive. Behavior's late. When you're dealing with behavior, you're late to the show. When you're dealing with the problems that are causing those behaviors, you're early. You want to be early. You don't want to be late. When you're late, you're in crisis management mode. When you're early, you're in crisis prevention mode. That's huge. Huge! Now let's just talk a little bit about your lenses before I spend a little bit of time talking about how you solve problems collaboratively and proactively, and then we will start talking to each other. But here's the last big shift that I want to talk about. It's, it's your lenses. Boy, we've been saying some really interesting and incorrect things about behaviorally challenging kids for a very long time. We've been saying that they're attention-seeking, manipulative, coercive, limit-testing, unmotivated. Where do we come up with this stuff? What the research tells us is that the reason your child is having difficulty meeting certain expectations 
And the reason your child may be exhibiting some very big behaviors when having difficulty meeting those expectations is because your child is lacking some very important skills. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but perhaps the most important thing we've learned about behaviorally challenging kids in the last 40 to 50 years is that they are lacking skills, not motivation. And yet, for longer than 40 to 50 years, what have we been trying to do? Motivate them. Isn't that interesting? Uh, rewarding and punishing are our primary motivational strategies. Rewarding and punishing doesn't solve any of the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing you to feel need to reward or punish your kid in the first place. Nothing takes the place of solving problems. And now you know you're going to be doing it collaboratively with your kid and proactively, not in the heat of the moment. So the lenses of this model, pretty simple phrase, but it, no matter where I travel throughout the world, not lately, of course, but wherever I've traveled throughout the world, people tell me that this single line is the one that really got their heads turned around. Kids do well if they can. By the way, kids are not the only ones who do well if they can. Parents do well if they can. Educators do well if they can. We all do well if we can. This is the belief that if this kid could do well, he or she would do well. This is the belief that this kid would very much prefer to be doing well. What's getting in the way? Lagging skills and unsolved problems. Now you might be wondering, uh, I'm not going to go into great detail about lagging skills, just going to give you these sort of umbrella skills here. Flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving. There's many much more specific skills that the research has told us behaviorally challenging kids could be lacking. But those are the biggies. Flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving. If your kid is lacking those skills, then there are going to be certain expectations. Your kid has more difficulty meeting than the average kid. And your child's reaction when having difficulty meeting those expectations, especially if you are using power to try to get them to meet those expectations that they're having difficulty meeting. That's why some kids, my favorite, are responding to that frustration with very big behaviors, screaming, swearing, hitting, spitting, biting, destroying, running. But here's what's amazing. There's really very little difference between those behaviors and ones that we might call more mild expressions of the fact that a child is having difficulty meeting certain expectations, whining, pouting, sulking, withdrawing, crying. In this model, a signal is a signal is a signal. Yeah, some signals are scarier and more dangerous than others, but a signal is a signal, especially in one respect. It's the way your child is communicating. 
there are expectations I'm having difficulty meeting. If you want to be early, you're going to focus on those expectations, unsolved problems. If you want to be late, continue focusing on the signal and continue relying on rewards and punishments to try to modify the signal. So you're going to need a list of expectations your child is having difficulty reliably meeting, whether that's difficulty brushing teeth before going to bed at night, or difficulty getting off the Xbox to come into dinner, or difficulty um, taking a shower or bath at least three times a week, or difficulty sharing toys with your brother, or um, difficulty eating what mom made for dinner, or difficulty being in bed with the lights off by 9 p.m., or difficulty being out of bed with the lights on by 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., whatever new time the pandemic has put into your family, or difficulty leaving mom or dad alone when they're on the phone because they're working from home, difficulty finding something to do because you can't visit with your friends right now. Difficulty washing your hands when you come in from outside. Something I've never taken as seriously as I do now. Some of those are sort of expectations your kid was having difficulty meeting pre-pandemic. And some of them are expectations that have been imposed on us by the pandemic. But they're all expectations, and whether your child is communicating that he or she is having difficulty meeting them in ways that are big, what I call unlucky, or more timid, what I call lucky, you're still on the hook for figuring out what those expectations are and then engaging your child in the process of solving those problems collaboratively and proactively. How do you do that? Three steps. Three steps involved in solving a problem collaboratively, what I call Plan B. And I'm betting we have a lot of members of the B team listening in on this fireside chat. If you're not familiar with the B team, you should be familiar with the B team. It's the Facebook group for parents, and you can find it on the Lives in the Balance website. And um, Boy, do things get interesting in there sometimes. A lot of people who are very passionate about this way of understanding and treating kids. But what we call Plan B consists of three steps. The first step is called the Empathy Step. The second step is called the Define Adult Concern Step. And the third step is called the Invitation. The names of the steps don't matter that much. The ingredients matter a great deal the main ingredient of the empathy step? Information gathering. Gathering information from your child so as to understand what's making it hard for your child to meet a particular expectation. As I always say, you need info. The empathy step is where you get it. Your best source of information on what's making it hard for a child to meet a particular expectation is the child. As I always say, no offense, but it's not you. 
as I always tell people, it's not your job to know. It's your job to know how to find out. The define it all concern step. This is where you are entering your concern into concern. By the way, don't think about doing all of this in the heat of the moment. I'm going to get you out of the heat of the moment. I say that to parents and educators all the time. But you need your list. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in the heat of the moment. Your list of all of the expectations the kids you're thinking about right now is having difficulty reliably meeting. If you don't have your list, you're going to end up in the heat of the moment. Crisis management. I'm going to get you out of the heat of the moment. The define it all concern step is where the adult or caregiver is entering his or her concern into consideration. Adult concerns, by the way, the same exact concern that you might have tried to use power to get addressed previously is now being addressed collaboratively. Adult concerns usually relate to why it's important for this expectation to be met. How is the unsolved problem affecting the kid? How is the unsolved problem affecting other people? What I say to caregivers frequently is, if you don't know why it's important that this expectation be met, then I don't know why you have this expectation. Finally, the invitation. This is where kid and caregiver are collaborating on a solution, doing it together but a solution that must meet two criteria. It's got to be realistic, meaning both parties got to be able to do what they're agreeing to do. It's got to be mutually satisfactory, meaning the solution truly addresses the concerns of both parties. Here's what I say all the time, and world history bears me out on it. If a solution is not realistic and mutually satisfactory, I promise you this problem is still unsolved. Hmm. I wonder if that has application to current events. Probably so. So here's the deal. Um, we'll probably get into the weeds here on each step if you call in or ask questions about them. But there's a great way for you to learn more about what each of the three steps looks like, and you can do that in the walking tour on the Lives in the Balance website. There's a walking tour for educators and there's a walking tour for parents. Um, take the tour if you've never taken the tour. New video is coming to the tour. We're always trying to add new video and always trying to show people what this thing that we call Plan B looks like. Um, just a few little tidbits and then we'll start doing calls and taking questions. Um, the concerns of both parties are of equal legitimacy. See, since this is not about power, it's okay for you to respect your kids' concerns. And quite frankly, you probably want to respect your kids' concerns if you want your kid to respect yours. The concerns of both parties are of exactly equal legitimacy. This is exactly the opposite of what national politicians might call fake news. Um, isn't that interesting? Fake news is being dismissive of somebody else's concern or perspective. 
In this model, you are not being dismissive of anybody's concern or perspective. They're equally valid. They need to be addressed. It's legitimate to be concerned about the economy. People are very worried that they're not going to have any money, that they're not going to be able to live and pay for things. It is very legitimate to be worried about this horrible disease called COVID-19. Uh, both are legitimate. Why that caused people to become adversarial with each other, so unnecessary, so counterproductive. It's also counterproductive in your family. Your concerns are legit. Your kids' concerns are legit. And this problem is not going to be solved unless the concerns of both parties get addressed. All right. Now we're on a level playing field. Took about a half an hour, but now we've got over an hour left to answer questions, take calls, hear about any creative things that you've been doing during the pandemic to try to manage all of this. Let's jump in with a caller. And by the way, that number again, I did remember, 347-994-2981. Let's get a caller on the line, shall we? Area code 813, you're on the line. What's going on? Area code 813. Hi, can you guys hear me? We can now. How you doing? Doing well. How are you doing, Dr. Green? I'm doing well. Don't use any names or locations. Let's keep this anonymous. Um, what's on your mind tonight? Sounds great. I am new to the program, but I am loving it. I was wondering if you had any advice for helping children get access to some of these techniques that live in residential centers or group homes. Well, we've implemented the model in lots of residential facilities and group home type environments. Believe it or not, it's no different. Um, truth is, I don't usually see much difference between where this model is implemented and what it looks like. Hard thing in group homes and residential facilities is there's more staff and they got to communicate well with each other um, and they got to be on the same page. And it's a little bit harder in a facility that has multiple staff members and multiple shifts than it is between two parents. Now, some of you, some, some parents right now are sitting there thinking about how hard it is just for them to agree. Imagine what it's like if you've got 30 staff members working in a residential facility or a prison or an inpatient psychiatry unit, but it can be done. And the bottom line is on each kid, you're identifying their lagging skills and unsolved problems. You are prioritizing, so you're not working on everything at once. And you are solving problems collaboratively and proactively. Now, here's the interesting thing about the types of kids who sometimes end up in group homes and residential facilities. Uh, often they're a bit older, and the reason that's important is because it means that they've been struggling with the pile of unsolved problems that they walked into the facility with for a very long time. Some of them um, may have lost faith that those problems will ever get solved. Some of them may have lost faith in us adults 
the folks who were supposed to be identifying those problems and trying to solve them collaboratively and proactively, but instead were relying really heavily on rewards and punishments just to deal with the signal. Um, so you may have some jaded kids in there, kids who've lost faith in, in life and in themselves. What's amazing is I find that when we start collaborating with kids on solving the problems that have been affecting their lives for a very long time, they're not so jaded anymore. They may not exactly trust you in the beginning because they're waiting for you to lower the boom, but they'll come around. Those are the main differences I see when you're impl implementing this in a residential facility or a group home as compared to a family. And by the way, no different in schools, no different in prisons, no different in the adult psychiatric facilities in which we've implemented collaborative and proactive solutions. That help you out? Wonderfully so, sir. Is it okay if I ask a question about schools? Of course. How do you get schools to embrace it when they're mm. so and they don't want to? <sighs> that's, that's, you know what? That's, that's the tough question because here's the interesting thing. The, the only thing I would say is I wouldn't say they don't want to. I would say that many schools have been doing things in a certain way for a very long time. Many schools, old habits die hard. But the bottom line is, the way they're doing things is not working for your kid. And if you are doing something that is working for your kid, and it's different from what they're doing that isn't working for your kid, that's something educators should have an open mind about. That's something that they should listen to you about. Here's what's important for parents to recognize. And this is a very common scenario, by the way. Parents are implementing collaborative and proactive solutions at home. Things are better. But at school, things are the same. And they're not good. Just remember there are many, many forces at work in schools that support old ways of doing things. There are many structures in place that support old ways of doing things. And bottom line is many educators – this is not an indictment of educators because it's true of everybody. Many educators have been trained in a certain way. Many of them are trying really hard for your kid, but they don't necessarily know what to do instead. That's why one would hope that they have open ears. Now, my standard advice to parents is find somebody in the building who you think will be sympathetic to what you'd like to see happen whether that's a classroom teacher or a school counselor or the principal or assistant principal, meet with that person first. Explain to them, I've been having tremendous success with my kid, but not because of power, but because of collaboration, not because of consequences, not because we're focused on behavior, but because we're focused on solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. And ask them, because every school is different. How do I make this happen for my kid in this building? Who, who needs to be on my side? Who needs to be supporting me? How do we deal with all of these structural issues that are making it difficult for people to change how we're treating our kids in our schools? Meet with that one person, get their guidance, and go from there. That's my standard advice. 
just remember I can't emphasize this enough. There are so many structures in place in schools that force educators to focus on behaviors and modifying them rather than on the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. That's what you're walking into, old ways of doing things. Now, one other piece. Hopefully, you also have data on your side. I mean, your most compelling case is that what they're doing right now isn't working. The biggest danger is that you run the risk of having them say that you're making excuses for your kid. And your response should be, I'm not making excuses at all. I'm having great success with helping my child meet expectations at home. I'm just doing it differently than you are. I would love for you to learn more about how I'm doing it. You're not making excuses. You're not being a patsy. You're actually having more success with your child than they are, and not because you're dropping all of your expectations, but because you're solving those problems collaboratively instead of unilaterally. Find somebody in your building who will lend a sympathetic ear and ask them what you need to do next. I hope that helps. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. You bet. Take care. Let's go on to another caller. We have several folks waiting here. Area code 706, you are on the line. How are you doing tonight? Well, we're doing well, thank you. You actually have two people here, um, and we have two questions. Uh, so I hope we can do, two, do a two-for-one. Um, if you've got two people, one... we can do two questions. Go ahead. Great, thank you. Uh, so one of the questions we have, uh, I know you had said earlier that um, there, you're not really looking at teaching the lagging skills, but I'm wondering, we, you know, we, I live in Washington State, we have SEL standards now, we have an SEL curriculum in place, and um, in, in looking at where is the overlap between that SEL instruction or targeted SEL instruction for Tier 2, Tier 3 kids with the collaborative problem solving? Well, first of all, we don't call it collaborative problem solving anymore. We call it collaborative and proactive solutions, but that doesn't matter okay. so much. Um, <laughs> Social-emotional learning does focus on helping kids um, manage the social world, manage the emotional world, and often people try to go about doing that by focusing on skills that we hope kids will have, and I have no problem with that. In this model, the skills are actually not being taught explicitly. They are being taught more indirectly. Here's the good news, and this is related to the data that are coming out of Australia these days in uh, the largest study of collaborative and proactive solutions that's ever been done, and there have been some biggies. Um, when you're solving problems with kids collaboratively and proactively, the skills are being enhanced. In other words, you're not focused on helping kids make transitions better. I actually don't know of any technology that would help kids make transitions better. I don't know any. But I do know how to solve problems that involve making transitions, difficulty coming back into the classroom after recess, difficulty moving from the classroom to lunch, um, difficulty standing in line to get on the school bus in the afternoon. If you're solving problems that involve difficulty making transitions, then you are not only solving those specific problems, 
you are not only getting rid of the behaviors that are associated with those problems, you are also making a major dent in helping this kid make transitions better in general. It's just that you didn't do it by teaching them how to make transitions. Once again, I know of no technology that will help you do that. I do know a technology for helping solve the problems that involve difficulty making transitions. And I do know that if you're solving those problems over time, this kid is going to become better in general at making transitions. Now, you mentioned Tier 2 and Tier 3. We have many parents on the, uh, listening to the fireside chat here who don't know anything about what you're talking about. But I think you're talking about PBIS, Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. And that's been a big initiative, uh, especially in American public schools, but also in different places in the world, um, where we're dividing what we're doing to help kids into three tiers. Um, and I'm not a big tier guy. I think you can solve problems collaboratively and proactively with kids, whether it's tier one, which is for everybody, tier two, which is the next level, and tier three, which is the kids who haven't benefited from what you did at tier three. And in fact, why would we want to save solving problems collaboratively for tier two and tier three? I think that if we were solving problems collaboratively at tier one, we wouldn't have very many kids at tier two or tier three. So I don't really differentiate when I'm going to be doing collaborative and proactive solutions by tiers. I do it when there's a problem that needs to be solved. I hope that helps. Yes, it does. And I, and I think, um, you know, if you look at, like you had mentioned, I'll give you the, the example you talked about with, you know, if I'm having problems transitioning from the bus into the school or from, the recess back to class kinds of things. And I address each one of those problems individually in a collaborative and proactive manner. Then, you know, in the process of doing that, you learn problem solving and you learn how to do transitions. Um, but there it. are some kids that have, um, have lots have patterns, repetitive patterns of always having that same problem and, and when you sit down to do with a group of people to do the ALSUP and, and, you know, try to identify what are the consistencies across different locations in the schools and, and try to come up with, you know, identifying the, the, the first problem to solve um, or the most important problem to solve first, I should say, um, that kind of meeting usually happens at the point of a school sub-team meeting or something like that. And so usually until you have a pattern of, repeti you know, a repetitive pattern of behaviors that are impacting multiple people, and at that point we call that a tier two, but it really is pulling a whole group together to collaboratively identify what are the lagging skills and unsolved problems and then working with the student to, you know, solve that problem. Yes, but it doesn't have to be that way. You could be solving problems with a kid who's only got one or two without using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to do it. You don't have to wait. And you don't have to look for patterns before you start solving a specific problem. In fact, once there's patterns, I would say we're later than we need to be. So that patterns is actually not part of this model. Patterns is something PBIS might look for, but collaborative and proactive solutions does not look for. 
In this model, all we care about is that there's an expectation that a kid is having difficulty meeting reliably. You don't have to mm -hmm. wait till what people call tier two before you start identifying and solving problems with kids. And that's why I'm going to repeat what I said. The more you're doing that at tier one, the earlier in the game you are and the less kids you're going to have at tier two and tier three. And if you're solving mm -hmm. problems collaboratively at all three tiers, then what does the tier really mean? Right. Not that much. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna time? beg off beg well we've got five other people in line so I'm gonna let, let's see if we can answer the second one quickly. The second question is I'm a school counselor and, and I'm talking to teachers about your model, and the the pushback we get is there's no time in the school day to spend a lot of time going through the ALSEP and and prioritizing, and I can't we can't get past that that them not seeing that there's time and I know your theory is. Well, you're going to spend the time anyway, so you might as well just dig in and spend the time. But I was wondering, in your in your work with schools, when do they use that time during the school day? Just to, well, here's to what's interesting. Process. Here's what's interesting. You all are finding the time when it's late in the game. By the time a kid is hitting tier two, you're finding the time. You're, you're, there's there's structures built in to have a meeting, student assessment team meeting, student study team meeting, child study meeting, whatever you want to call them. These meetings take place. So it's not like the meetings take up time that we're not already spending on the kid. Um, the big issue is we wouldn't be having so many meetings if we were solving those problems before we needed the meeting. But here's the interesting thing. I don't find that this is about time. I find that this is about commitment. One thing I do know, and this is a structural issue, like I was talking about earlier, the schools schools were not designed uh, schools were not designed around solving problems with kids. They were designed around academics. No wonder we don't feel like we have time to solve problems with kids. And yet, and that would be great, by the way, if academics was the only thing walking in the door. But academics is not the only thing walking in the door. Lots of problems are walking in the door. What I find is that when schools commit to finding the time to solve problems with kids, they don't have a time issue anymore. And as you mentioned, they're saving time. But that's a structural issue. How we use our time is a structural issue that schools have to deal with. Now, adding more to this mess Schools are being pressured by legislators to focus almost exclusively on academics. And boy, do we pay the price for that every single day in schools. We pay the price with kids who we should be solving problems with, but we can't because we're taking up all of our time on academics. Um, we pay the price further down the road when we have to put these kids in special placements that cost anywhere from thirty dollars to $120,000 a year. We pay the price when we lose them completely and they end up incarcerated. Um, boy, do we pay the price for the fact that we have yet to commit to solving problems collaboratively and proactively with kids. Now, you don't need an assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems on every kid in your building. You need an assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems on every kid that you're worried about the most. And in every building, that's 10, 20, 30 kids, depending on the size of the building. Those are the kids you are currently losing. 
you need an ALSIP on those kids badly. And by the way, most of those kids are already technically meeting whatever criteria you have for Tier 2 or Tier 3. You're there already. You're meeting already. Completing the ALSIP should take about 45 to 50 minutes. That's what should be going on in our meeting. If what we're talking about in our meeting is behavior, then we are missing the boat and we are missing crucial information about the two most important things we need to know about this kid. What are this kid's lagging skills? What are this kid's unsolved problems? What a shame. We've got this entire infrastructure built around behavior. And behavior is not only the wrong thing to focus on, it's late. I'm going to say goodbye to you because I want to get some other callers, but I appreciate your questions, and I thank you for calling in. Let's thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Area code 414, you are next in line. What is on your mind this evening? Area code 414. Milwaukee, does that help? Going once. Going twice, let's turn to area code 202. Talk to us, area code 202. What's going on tonight? Good evening, Dr. Green. How you doing? Great. Thank you for offering this. When a child is overwhelmed, shutting down, and, and has a pattern, uh, feels misunderstood, is reluctant to talk to parents, um, my question specifically about, what are some strategies to start the CPS conversation and to build trust and score some win-win solutions? In particular, I'm curious about when a child is twice exceptional and hasn't received adequate accommodations, perhaps for a learning disability, or when sensory processing leads to hygiene difficulties. Well, what you just mentioned at the end there are the things that I'm most interested in. Um, specific unsolved problems. Before that, you were talking in very general terms and saying some things about your kid that may well be true, but that don't really help me know what it is that you want to work on with your kid. But I am hearing some hygiene issues that would need to be worded into very specific unsolved problems that you can talk to your kid about, um, even if your kid is twice exceptional or not. Um, so what you want to get down to is the level of very specific unsolved problems and um, what is it that, uh, how have you been approaching your child that makes you feel like you're not going to be able to engage your child in that conversation? Typically what happens is this child will shut down. And when we try to bring up the issue later, um, the, the child does not engage, just uh, shuts down again, makes a funny face, and um really will not want to talk about it. So we've tried to seed conversations very gently with just an, an approach to bring something up around the subject, but not directly. Obliquely works better, yeah. we found, but we're still not having the full conversation. It, it, we're never getting to that full conversation. Meanwhile, the child's solving some problems on his own. Um, when he missed class, for example, he, he went in on his own the next day, and listen to the recorded distance learning session. So Good. So the kid has some problem-solving skills. But let me ask even more specifically. 
Give me an example of something you're trying to talk to this kid about. You said issues. Washing his hair. So for those who have never done the empathy step, it would sound like this. I've noticed you have difficulty washing your hair. What's up? What do you get next? By the way, I want to make sure we got our timing right here because I heard something about there's an issue and you try talking with him about it then, then you try talking with him about it later. I hope you're not doing what we would call emergency plan B because that could make your child or this child more reluctant to participate in the conversation later. So a question that I'm always asking people is, have y'all made your list yet? Your list of unsolved problems? And have you prioritized yet? Because we definitely, you are going to have far lower odds of having a kid participate in the process if you're doing it in the heat of the moment. What do you think? We have prioritized and hair is probably number two. And the kid won't talk about difficulty cleaning hair. Then here's my suggestion. Your timing, it sounds like, is right. I think that there's a good chance you worded the unsolved problem. All those are my usual two first passes at why won't this kid talk to you. I don't know why this kid won't talk to you, but I have a strategy for you. Maybe you've seen this on the website or heard me talk about it before. I would teach the kid five fingers. Five means very true. Four means pretty true. Three means sort of true. Two means not very true. One means not true at all. Then, to relieve the kid of all burden of speaking, I would make statements. Yes, this is educated guessing. This is hypothesis testing. We don't usually like to do it unless we have a kid who's a non-talker. If you've got a non-talker, you almost have no choice. Make statements and have the kid hold up fingers to let you know how true the statement is. Um, the reason you're having difficulty washing your hair is because you're worried that the soap will get in your eyes. You're going to get five, four, three, two, one. By the way, if five fingers is too many, go with three. If three is too many, go with two. Thumbs up, thumbs down. If two is too many, put yes and no on two sticky pads in front of the kid and have them just tap whichever one is true. I think that is what I would do next with the child that you're describing. I think that'll work. Thank you. Good luck. We like it when it works. Sometimes it does, and if it doesn't, we come up with something else. Area code 587, what is on your mind tonight? You're on the fireside chat. Area code 587. Going once. Hello? Hello? That's you. It's you. It's me. Okay. Um, uh, there, there are four people here. I don't know how many I can ask quickly, quickly. But um, we are looking at homeschooling our son of 13. I'm already homeschooling our daughter of 11. He constantly bullies and hurts her, antagonizes and upsets. And, you know, there's verbal abuse all day and swearing. So practically, I'm not too sure how I'm going to pull off homeschooling the two together. What advice do you have? Because it's also our duty to 
protect our daughter emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, and she of is course. at her with Here's the question. Have you made your list yet? Because what I've heard about so far is behavior. And by the way, I have often been accused of sounding a bit like a broken record, but the model's the model. I heard what he's doing to his sister. I heard that he's having, now I'm going to word it as an unsolved problem, difficulty getting along with his sister. But here's what I don't know. I don't know what's causing those behaviors. I don't know what expectations are being placed on your son when he's with your daughter that he's having difficulty managing that are causing him to communicate that he's having difficulty managing through some pretty serious behaviors. So there's no question. You're spot on. Got to protect your daughter. Um, But focusing on behavior is not going to protect your daughter. Focusing on the problems that are causing those behaviors are what are going to protect your daughter. I think your goal is fantastic. You want your daughter to be safe. I just don't think you're going to get there by focusing on the behaviors. You're going to get there by focusing on the problems that are causing those behaviors and engaging your son in solving those problems. Yes. And um, I don't know what you feel about the subgroup pathological demand avoidance on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Do Do you recognize it as valid? Um, as much as I recognize any diagnosis as valid, but if you know my work, you know that I'm not a very diagnostically oriented mental health professional. And so pathological demand avoidance means about the same thing to me as autism spectrum disorder, which means about the same thing to me as oppositional defiant disorder. Think that these disorders describe mostly behaviors. Most diagnoses are just long lists of behaviors. They don't tell us what skills your kid is lacking, They don't tell us what expectations your child is having difficulty meeting. So I've been telling this story lately, but it applies. I was speaking in Denmark at an autism conference about a year ago, and maybe a third of the way through what I usually say, and a mother raised her hand very hesitantly and said, well, I, I found my daughter's autism diagnosis to be very helpful. I said, good. She said, but I think what you're saying is that My daughter's autism diagnosis really doesn't tell me anything about her lagging skills and unsolved problems. I said, right. She pondered it a bit further, and then she said, and I think what you're saying is that once I figure out what my child's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, I'm going to find that her autism diagnosis wasn't really telling me very much at all. Mm. And I Mm. said, right. Mm That's how I feel about pathological demand avoidance as well. Okay. We get so um, caught up. We get so caught up in our categories that we miss the forest for the trees. I realize that the categories can be useful. They, the, one of the most useful things about those categories is they help parents recognize, feel legitimate in their belief that there's something different about their kid. You know what? I believe you. Without the diagnosis... I believe you. Now let's get to the part that's been missing. What are your kids' lagging skills? What are your kids' unsolved problems? So that you can get to work. Because i got to tell you, if all you know about your kid is that your kid has been diagnosed with pathological demand avoidance, I have absolutely no idea what you would do next. 
But if you know what your kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, I have a lot of ideas about what you could do next. Yep. Okay. And then uh, our sense, too, that this focus on the academics is, is definitely not our priority. And where we live, you can choose to homeschool um, where it's called traditional, so it's parent-led, doing different curriculum. Uh, you can have it self-directed, you know, based on interests, etc. And you just have certain goals overall that you're trying to meet over time. Or you can sort of end up doing the government's curriculum. Or you can, you know, when they're in the last three years of school, you can do work experience focused or apprenticeship focused. Now, he's not in the place where he can even see himself in the future or begin to decide where he wants to go because he's struggling so with the demands of life. Uh, do you have any also 13. as to which way to go? Uh, not specifically. I don't know enough about your situation to give Fine. you specific then, guidance there. I apologize. That's okay. And then the order of priorities, is, is there an order? Like do you work on safety issues first? Then do you work yes. on... Safety uh, first. Then are you trying to go for something that might be easiest so they can feel some sense of success, or do you are you mm, going to I don't one think, problems? I don't think you're going to know what's easy until you do Plan B. So I wouldn't rank them by easy. My usual algorithm okay. is safety first. If you don't have safety issues, you're either going with frequency, the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes most often, or gravity the unsolved problems that are, setting in, that are having the greatest negative impact on your kid's life or the lives of others. Don't split hairs on prioritizing. It's more important that you make your list and get started solving problems collaboratively and proactively. You just heard the algorithm. If it helps you, make your picks. Great. If it doesn't, get started anyways. Okay. And then do... Does one ignore all the behaviors like the threats, the verbal abuse, the swearing? You know, as, as you start to... solving problems collaboratively and proactively, the behaviors are going to subside. Okay, and until, until the then, problems are solved, until, you ignore? until then you're going to muddle through just like you're doing now. Okay, yes, and not make that the focus. Fine. Oh, well, now wait um, one more, one second. There's, there's something we didn't, I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off there, though. But there is, because there's other people waiting to ask questions. But one more thing that I didn't mention is yeah. another way to dramatically reduce challenging behavior is on the unsolved problems that you have decided not to prioritize, you are dropping them for now. A lot of swearing is being caused by expectations your child cannot meet. You're never working on more than three expectations, unsolved problems at any given point in time with your child. The rest, you're dropping. He's not meeting them anyways. So we're going to make a big dent in the swearing with plan B, but we're going to make a big dent in the swearing with what we call plan C. Plan C are the expectations you have removed for now because you have bigger fish to fry. Okay, very good. Thank you. Good luck with it all. You bet. Thanks Thank for calling. You. Thank you. Bye -bye. you bet. Bye-bye. Now we're going to move on. I want to cover a few um, uh, questions that people wrote in with, and I'll get back to the calls. Here's one. 
This one says, how do you handle kids that curse their parents out? Every time I ask my kids questions, they just stop and get angry. How do I handle that? Make your list of the expectations that your child is having difficulty meeting. Proactively learn how to do plan B. You can learn a lot of that on the Lives in the Balance website. Stop focusing on the behavior. And by the way, in no way, shape, or form am I saying it's okay for kids to curse their parents out. It's just that when they're cursing you out, you're already late. And I don't want you to be late. When you're late, you're focused on behavior. I want you to be early and focus on the problems that are causing those behaviors. The only real thing in this email that tells me anything is that this kid is swearing. Swearing's not great. When will the swearing end? When we start solving the problems that are causing the swearing. Now, if I was reading through the, reading through the lines here, and I don't like to do that because I only have three sentences here, so I don't like to make a lot out of just three sentences. But um, it says, every time I ask my kids questions, they just stop and get angry. How do I handle that? Well, if, if let's say, maybe not, maybe this is not what's happening, but let's say you're springing a problem on your kid and asking them for information, either in the heat of the moment or you haven't let them know what it is that you'd like to talk with them about. Now they might not be interested in talking with you. So I would recommend that you make an appointment. That's right. Make an appointment with your kid and actually let them know what you want to talk with them about ahead of time. Make sure that you're talking with them about an unsolved problem, not a behavior. And let's see what happens if you're doing that. Let's get one to another caller. I don't know what area code this one is. It says on my screen 111. I have a feeling this is a call from a foreign country, and I'm not sure if me saying 111 is going to let this person know that they're on the air, but 111, you're on the air. I'm not sure if that's me or not. It's you. It's you. Okay. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm calling from Canada. Um, Got it. There is no area code 111 in Canada, but it's okay. (laughs) Tell us what's on your mind. Um, question, we work in a school system, and a question regarding students with no language skills. Their mm. developmental level is between zero and one years of age. Um, using pictures, they use the PECS program. They typically have no focus in, there in order to be able to do that. Five fingers or thumb up, thumb down, they're not understanding what it is that that means. They're not understanding the conversation. So how do you, with kids with those kinds of challenges, how do you get their kids, their concerns on the table, and how do you collaborate with them? You guess. Here's the interesting thing. Um, my reference point for the kind of kids you just described is infants. Yeah. Infants. No one would imagine solving problems collaboratively and proactively with infants, but we do. Here's how we do it. And by the way, this is true of any infant, not necessarily infants who are developmentally delayed. It's just that if you peg a kid's developmental age at zero to one, you're going to put me in infant territory. What do we do with infants? Well, first of all, we have to notice when something's troubling them. We have to notice when there's an expectation they're having difficulty meeting. We do that with infants. We can do that with the kind of kids you're describing. Secondly, we try to guess what's getting in their way. 
people do that with infants all the time. If you've got a kid who cannot inform you, even with the assistive technologies that you're using, then you're going to have no choice but to guess. Uh, not guess forever, because we're going to want you to build in some stuff along the way, and it sounds like you're trying to build in some stuff. It's just that you're dealing with kids who are very compromised um, in some important domains, and so solving problems collaboratively is not something they're going to be able to participate in easily, but that doesn't mean we can't get the ball rolling. What do we do next with infants? We try to apply a solution. By the way, a lot of this is using one of our most important senses, our eyes. What any good speech and language pathologist will tell you in kids who are completely nonverbal is that their most important skill is their eyes, their observational skills. Same with infants, by the way. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to figure out what's getting in the infant's way, or this kid, and we're going to try to apply solutions. Um, and then the infant, or this kid, is going to let us know very clearly whether our solution got the job done. If it didn't, we got data. If it did, we got data. We got information. And as time goes on, um, we're going to start understanding this kid better. And we're actually going to be able to predict what's the matter better and what solutions are going to work better. But this is very important. Along the way, don't give up. No, I'm not saying that you are. Don't give up on looking for ways for these kids to communicate with you. In assistive technology that is often through a yes and no icon um, on their Prolo, quote go or whatever technology that you're using so that you can guess and they can start little by little learning how to let you know what's going on with them. What a, what a difficult existence to be a kid who can communicate so little about what's the matter. So I don't know if you're doing all three steps with the kid in the beginning, but you're building toward that. And in the meantime, you're gathering data in your efforts to solve problems with this kid and notice what's the matter. Over time, you're going to understand better. And if you're working on ways for this kid to communicate with you, hopefully, no guarantees with the, with the level that you're talking about, hopefully you have a kid who little by little over time is better able through one mechanism or another to participate in solving the problems that are affecting his or her life. Okay, you've given me uh, some things to think about and a plan for that we will definitely give it a shot. Good. Thanks for calling in. Thank you very much. Only 20 minutes here before the fire gets turned out. Let's turn to area code 508, an area code that is near and dear to my heart. Tell us what's yeah. going on, area code 508. Uh, hi, is that me? Good. I think okay. that is you. All right. Hi, Dr. Green. Thank you so much for taking the call. Uh, one of the things that I would love to, um, to ask you about is um, I'm wondering if I can, in the interest of running by a, a specific incident, um, you know, talking about a specific example, um, get your take on... Um, some advice that we've gotten for collabor uh, not collaborative problem solving, collaborative. And proactive solutions. 
that's the one. You can just say uh, CPS. CPS. Um, just um, by giving you an example. So um, we, um, like other families, we've been doing a lot of baking recently. Um, and <laughs> This is the thing, but keep going. Absolutely. Um, banana bread's become the, uh, the new national food. Um, so <laughs> one of the things that um, we've experienced is that at first we just sort of put all the cookies or brownies or whatever it may be in one container and noticed that our 11-year-old was eating a kind of disproportionate number of the cookies. Um, I think and you emailed on the question, didn't you? Say that again? Did you email in a question? Yes, I did. It's sitting right in front of me. We're about to get there. So good. This counts as both a call and an emailed question. Keep going. Perfect. This is a very fascinating scenario. Go ahead. You got it. Um, so we moved to a plan of dividing up the treats into labeled bags. I'm reading the email with you. Um, and we had some sex success with this at first, um, but some things from other bags started to disappear. Um, and recently at dinner, our 15-year-old um, sort of respectfully, clearly articulated um, that she wanted everyone to leave her her second piece of bacon that we had made for dinner, it was sort of a breakfast for dinner night, um, because she wanted to use it in the sandwich the following day. And when she went to use it, the bacon was gone. And we know that our 11-year-old took it um, through a process of elimination. Um, it wasn't me. It wasn't my wife. My daughter has, hadn't used the, the bacon yet. Um, and so we received some um, some CPS suggestions, um, and I, I'm wondering if um, if I can get your your advice on what is appropriate in in the suggestion and what may be missing. Um, so you know the thing that we would I think hope to say is that we've noticed that recently there have been several times when someone has saved food that they wanted for later and that food has gone missing. Um, and it's been really hard for you to tell us truthfully when that happened. Um, then the, you know, so what's up? Um, did this, did and, this happen or this, this is in our imagination that what this is? No, what not in our imagination. Like. Uh, the conversation, this conversation I, actually took place. Um, not really. Um, we, we want the conversation to take place and got it. The, the timing happened to coincide with your chat. So, we figured we would get our uh, our conversation really solidified before we have it. Um, okay, before you keep going, let me stop you. Yes. Okay. Um, I don't like how you worded your unsolved problem. Okay, tell me more. Here's the here's the well here's the tricky part. I'm I'm worried that that wording is going to feel to the child who you believe is um, taking food that is designated for somebody else. I know you're pretty sure about it. But I would approach it a bit more tentatively. Okay. Um, you have the expectation. What I would say is that you're talking to all the siblings about this, not just him. Okay. Yeah. I don't want him to feel like he's the guy on the hot seat. Because, first of all, there's no reason for him to be on the hot seat. This is just an expectation that he's having difficulty meeting. Right? So I would probably word it as, and I would say that you're talking with everybody about this, but difficulty respecting that others have reserved food in the refrigerator. Yeah. That's as, I think that will cause less defensiveness and promote honesty. Okay. 
the wording of the unsolved problem is really important. Um, nope. Difficulty leaving food that's been designated for someone else alone in the refrigerator. That's probably how I yeah. word it. Then you would say, what, what's up? Yep. Now, and here's then, the deal. Because, go ahead. Yeah, and then ideally, you know, unlikely to happen, but ideally, you know, there's the sort of, in an ideal CPS world, he fesses up. Well, I really wanted to eat the thing. I well, was really well you're, not, you're not looking for him to fess up. You're not looking for him to fess up. This is not a confession, right? And oh, you're okay. not an interrogator when you're doing plan B. What you're looking for in, plan, in the empathy step is info. And here's the, this is not, we're not looking for, your, your goal in the empathy step is not for him to fess up. Okay. Your goal in the empathy step is for him to help you understand what's hard for him about meeting that expectation. That's your goal. Okay. And here's the interesting thing. We honestly have no idea what he's going to say next. Right. Which means I can help you no further. Let's word your unsolved problem well. Let's see what he says. It is not your goal to catch him. It is not your goal to make him feel like he's in trouble, which is what fessing up usually leads to. Right. You're not mad. He's not in trouble. You're looking to understand. And that, by the way, is how I often recommend that people introduce what's going to happen in the empathy step. There's something I would like to understand that I do not understand now. And I'm talking with your siblings about this too. But sometimes when somebody reserves food for themselves in the refrigerator, it's not there when they want to eat it. And I wanted to ask you about that too. What's hard for you about that if that's been a hard thing for you? And he has said, he says, he has yep. said it's not me. Let's see if you're not trying to get him to fess up. Let's see if this doesn't. We're not wording the unsolved problem in a way that causes him to feel like he's on the defensive. Denial, by the way, is not just a river in Egypt. It is the most primitive of defense mechanisms. Denial is what people do when they feel like they are in trouble. So I would reassure him in the front, you're not in trouble. I'm not mad. There's just something I would very much like to understand. Right. Let's see if let's see what you get next. Quite frankly, we don't know. But if we do another fireside chat, call in first because I'm dying to find out. <laughs> you got it. Take care. Thanks a lot. You too. You bet. We have time for a few more calls. Only 12 minutes before the fire goes out here. Area card 435. You are on the air. What's on your mind? I'm guessing that's me. That is you. Okay. Um, I'm wondering. I'm a I'm a new clinician uh, in a in a rural rural de- district, trauma informed and trauma in, uh, responsive. Trying to create this new program here in the school district that doesn't exist. Most of them haven't even heard of the Aces. Um, I'm just looking for input about how to. Uh, maybe get this on board in the school district with a trauma-informed lens? Well, here's what I say a lot of people saying about the trauma-informed lens. It helped them be more compassionate toward kids. It helped them understand why some kids are having the difficulties that they're having. But what a lot of people say to me about 
trauma-informed care is that it didn't tell them what to do next. Right. So I'm all for, I'm all for understanding kids better, and I'm all for understanding that some kids have trauma histories. I also think it's important to acknowledge that many behaviorally challenging kids, I wouldn't think of trauma as the main factor that is contributing to their trauma. So we don't want to go into this thinking that the same thing causes everything. But the bottom line, and many, many educators have said this to me, yeah, yeah, now what do I do? Right. Okay. Now I understand about trauma history. Now I understand the effect of adverse childhood experiences on the brain. Now what? My answer to now right. what? What many people have said to me once they've learned about collaborative and proactive solutions is, well, this sort of checks off all the boxes for what we'd want to be doing if a kid does have a trauma history. So your big question is, what do you want to lead with? Here's the interesting thing. In collaborative and proactive solutions, we lead with lagging skills. That's our lenses. That's the explanation for why a kid is responding to frustration in ways that are so maladaptive. Right. One factor that can, tr- can contribute to lagging skills is trauma. Trauma is not the only factor. There are many factors that can contribute to lagging skills. Trauma is one of them. Sometimes I worry that if we're leading with trauma, we're leaving out other explanations. I think people really want to know what to do. So even if you do lead with trauma and help people understand the ACEs and help people understand the effect of trauma on the brain, we have to help them know what to do next. And um, boy, having kids feel heard, this is the empathy step, is one thing you do next. Having kids have a voice, empathy step. Uh, Working together on solutions that work for both of us, uh, invitation. Staying away from power. This is trauma-informed care, but it's called collaborative and proactive solutions. Make sense? It does. So getting rid of the PBIS, because this state is very PBIS-friendly, um, and I struggle with PBS a bit on my own lane. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I speak at PBIS conferences all the time, and so apparently um, PBIS and collaborative and proactive solutions can go together. They're not mutually exclusive. What I tell people right. at PBIS conferences, and I'm very upfront about this, is that my only problem with PBIS is the B word, positive <laughs> behavior interventions and supports because I think it leads people to focus on behavior, right? And if you're focused on behavior, you're probably going to be using rewards and punishments to deal with behavior and you just lost me. However, what the originators of PBIS say all the time is that PBIS is just a structure, just a structure. By definition, virtually any intervention can fit into that structure. So, I'm not anti-PBIS. I just have a big problem with the B word, and I have a big problem with the fact that in many schools, PBIS has not transformed their discipline program anywhere nearly enough to help the kids that I'm worried about the most. Right. Excellent. Thank you, Doc. There you have it. Have a good evening out there in Utah. 
Let's see if we can get two more calls in with apologies to the third person who's waiting. Area code 650, and then one more call. We'll, both, we'll try to make this quick, and then we'll try to turn to area code 315, and then I'll have a few closing comments. And then we'll have to let you know if we're going to do this again. I'm kind of enjoying this. I hope you all are getting a lot out of it. Area code 650, what's on your mind? Hi, Dr. Green. Um, I, you, I think you've answered my question, which was how this could work with somebody who is cognitively challenged. And you had spoken about the infants. In my daughter's case, um, um, let's see, it, her skill that we would, that I am going to be and ha- have been trying to work on is transitioning away from the computer. And when we talk about it, it's, it's hard for her to come up with problems on her own. And then also when she's in the moment, um, you know, it's hard for her to think of two things at once. And so all what I observe her doing is just knowing that it's time to get off the computer and she loves it so much. And so her reaction is, um, it, it, it's can be sometimes, well, it can be abusive. So, um, but you give me hope, <laughs> and I just wanted to hear if you Here, had any other things. I add. do. I think that I think that given what you've described about your daughter, difficulty getting off the computer is a, is wording of an unsolved problem that's too broad. Difficulty getting okay. off the computer to come into dinner. Difficulty getting off the computer to go to bed at night. Those are more specific. Okay, take one at a time, so you're not making her think about more than one thing at a time. Make it easy for her to envision, to picture what's going on in that very specific circumstance. So don't start so broad. Start specific. That's my main advice, given that you've said that your daughter has a great deal of difficulty thinking about more than two things at once. I don't. I hope I didn't hear you say that you're trying to do this in the heat of the moment, because now you know that you want to be doing it proactively. And if we do another fireside chat with those two pieces of advice, let's see what happens and feel free to call back in again. Thank you very much. Pleasure. And now finally, area code 315, our last caller of the evening before I close with a few parting thoughts. You're on the air. What's on your mind tonight? Hi, Doc. Hi, Dr. Green. Thank you for taking my call, and I'll try to make this quick. And you could have already um, answered my question as well. I have um, a two-year-old and a one-year-old, and um, I just was wondering this whole time, are they too young for me to start to intervene with some problem behaviors that I see more in my two-year-old against my one-year-old? And um, just looking for strategies and ways to help correct some of her behaviors it, I can't correct her behavior. I, get, I can't work on the behavior. I've got to work on what? The problems um, that are causing her, it. The problems, yes. And I don't know if it's is just your jealousy two-year-old of a verbal? one-year-old. Yeah, is your two-year-old she verbal? She is now. For the most, pretty good, yeah. Get started. Okay. She's not too young. Okay. Get started. All right. Um, well, it's thank not going to sound like it would with a 17-year-old. Here's what's interesting. Chronological age, as I've always said, does not determine whether a kid can participate in this process through our preferred modality, 
the spoken word. Um, language processing and communication skills are the main determinant of whether a kid can participate in this process through our preferred modality, the spoken word. If she's two and she's verbal, I'm a bet on her. I'm always telling people, don't sell those two-year-olds short. But if you were also listening to what I was describing with infants, that may have application here as well. I don't have the perfect yeah. sense of your daughter's ability to participate in the process. So either she can participate in words or you're using some of the other strategies that we've talked about over these yeah. uh, 90 minutes. And um, let's see how it goes. Okay. Well, thank you. You bet. Thanks for calling in. Bye-bye. So just a few closing thoughts here to end our first, but perhaps not only, fireside chat. I want to remind everybody that crises like this pandemic can bring out the worst in people. But crises like this pandemic can also bring out the best in people. I guess we could um, think about this pandemic in very negative terms, but why not? It's scary enough all on its own. Let's think of it instead as an opportunity. An opportunity, and this is hard, to show your best side and wake up in the morning determined to do that and determined to model something for your kids. The fact that you do listen, that's the empathy step. The fact that you do have concerns that you want to be addressed, that's the define it all concern step. The fact that you are willing to work together with your child on solving the problems that affect their lives. This is what you could have been doing all along. Pandemics give you a wonderful opportunity to practice. Thank you so much for joining in on this fireside chat. If we do it again, we'll let you know. I sure do hope you found it to be useful.